Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we're continuing in our current sermon series on the story of Jesus. And we've been working our way through Luke. It's going to take us a little while, but that's okay. From time to time, we'll take a break and do something else. But today we are in Luke chapter 3. And in a few moments, we're going to read from the passage starting in verse 21. I want to start by asking you a question, as I often do, to get you thinking about the direction I believe God wants to draw our hearts today and the practical application of what we're going to study. Here's the question, actually a couple questions. What do you most long to hear from the people that are close to you? What words, what expressions do you long to hear from the people that are close to you, from the people that are important to you? What words bring you joy? What words cause you to feel significant? What words, when you hear them, just enliven you? They bring you energy. They, they, it's like life is worth facing. Life is worth living. What kind of statements, what kind of expressions do that for you? As we all know, other people's words have a tremendous impact on us. And not just for the good, unfortunately. I'm sure every single one of us have experienced hurtful words, mocking words, painful words that can have just the opposite effect of what I just described. But the positive words, they have such a wonderful influence on our lives. In fact, if you were to look back over your life, probably some of your best memories have something to do with something that was said to you. And some of your worst memories perhaps have to do with something that was said to you. So we're going to come back to that in the application of the message today. The title of our message today is The Father's Declaration. The Father's Declaration. We're going to see in our story today that God the Father makes a declaration over Jesus Christ, His Son, at His baptism. And we're going to dig into what that declaration means and what it means to us today. So let me give you a little bit of background and then we're going to jump into our text in Luke chapter 3. We've been reading in Luke and studying the events leading up to this in the first couple chapters Luke is the one who gives us the most information about Jesus' coming into the world, his conception to the Virgin Mary, the birth in the town of Bethlehem, his being laid in a manger in a stable, all those things, the shepherds, all that kind of stuff. Luke is the only one that shares a story from Jesus' childhood. We talked about that about a month ago when he is in Jerusalem in the temple at the age of 12 confounding the religious leaders and teachers there with his wisdom and his understanding and his insight of God's word. Now there's been 18 years of silence about Jesus's life. A couple of weeks ago, we picked it back up. When John the Baptist bursts on the scene, he begins to preach a message of God's getting ready to enter into history in a special way. The event that we've been waiting for for so long. Now I'm paraphrasing everything here. The Messiah that God's going to send to establish his kingdom is getting ready to happen. And since it's getting ready to happen, you need to make sure that you're ready. And the message of getting ready is that if there's sin in your life, you need to repent. 
And John is called John the Baptist because he would baptize the people who had repented. The baptism was a symbol of the fact that they recognized they had sin in their life. They had asked God to forgive them. God had washed their sins away, so they were baptized to symbolize that. They were ready. They wanted to be ready for this Messiah to come. Well, that gives us the background to what we're going to read about today. Because Jesus has been in the background Since the age of 12, he has been just living at home, probably carrying on his father's business. His father's never mentioned after that episode when he was 12, so many believe that he died while he was relatively young. And so Jesus was the head of the home, basically, worked as a carpenter for 18 years after that episode when he was 12 until this time. But now it is time for him to begin that special work that God had called him to begin, to step into the public eye, to make himself known so he could begin to preach and to teach and and to, to verify his ministry and to verify his claims. He would heal people. He would even raise raise the dead. And of course, the culmination is going to be the cross. But we don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So let's look at the story here in Luke chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. We're going to go on. Next verse, verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat. Now, I'm going to stop right there. You can read the rest of this list on your own. I think there's 66 names doing the geneal- giving the genealogy of Jesus. But I want to point out a couple of specific names. It says here in verse 23 that he was the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. We know that he wasn't literally Joseph's son. Joseph was basically his stepfather because God was his father. But Joseph filled the role of an earthly father in his life. So he was the son as was supposed of Joseph. And you go down and it mentions Joseph's father and his father and father, father, all the way down. And then you get to verse 31, picking it up in the middle of the list. And it says this person was the son of Malia, the son of Mena, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David. Ah. Jesus is descended from David. And then it goes to David's father, Jesse, and then another uh, bunch of names in the list. And we get down to verse 34. And it says, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So Jesus was descended from Abraham, the father of their nation, the one that God had given the great promise to, that he was getting ready to break into the world and begin a process that would take thousands of years of bringing about redemption. Then we get down and just mention in passing in verse 36, it mentions Noah. We're all familiar with him. But then we get down to verse 38, and it's the very end of the list, which is really the beginning of the genealogy. It says, all these people related to, and the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, the son of Adam, who was the son of God. Now, Adam was not the son of God in the same way that Jesus was the son of God, but he was the son of God, and the fact that God created him as the very, very first human being. So we have here a story of Jesus' baptism. Doesn't tell a whole lot about the baptism, just what happened afterwards. 
If you want to learn more about the baptism and how it happened and his talking back and forth with John, you can read the same account in Matthew. Okay? But it talks about his baptism and then it goes immediately into this genealogy. Now, I've got a specific point, a specific focus I believe God wants us to look at today. But before we do that, I want to point out some very, very important concepts that are in this passage. We could develop a Bible study or a sermon about each and every one of these concepts, but we don't have time to do that. And I do have a specific focus I believe God wants us to look at. But I think it's important enough for us to mention at least the important things that are said or that are explained or that are mentioned in passing in this story. Just very few brief verses. The first one is that baptism is important. Baptism is important. John the Baptist showed up on the scene preaching that gospel of repentance and people were baptized to demonstrate that they had repented of their sins and their sins had been washed away. But it's interesting that this story is about the baptism of Jesus. As I said, there's a lot more details about this in Matthew chapter 3. But it raises a very important question. Why was Jesus baptized? If John's baptism was to show that the person being baptized had repented of their sins and been forgiven, their sins be washed away, why was Jesus baptized? Because Jesus was not a sinner. It's very clear in God's word that Jesus coming to earth as God lived the perfect life without sin. That's why he was able to die on the cross for our sins. He didn't have to pay for his own. He paid for ours. He certainly wasn't baptized to show repentance for sin. In fact, if you read the story in Matthew chapter 3, you see that Jesus comes and says, John, I want to be baptized. And John says, wait a minute. You don't need to be baptized by me. I need to be baptized by you. And Jesus says, let's do this anyway so that we can fulfill all righteousness. Well, the Bible nowhere states, well, Jesus was baptized because. But there are some principles we see in God's word that give us understanding of why Jesus was baptized, even though he didn't need to repent of sin. I believe the main number one reason was so that he could begin the process. Well, he began when he was born, but publicly begin the process of identifying himself and aligning himself with sinful humanity. He wasn't sinful, but he came to be a part of sinful humanity to accomplish the work of God. So being baptized, he was aligning himself. He was identifying himself with sinful humanity. Not only that, but I believe he did it to validate John the Baptist's ministry. To basically say, I approve of what John the Baptist has been doing. He's the one that God sent to prepare the way for me, and I'm the one he's been pointing to. He didn't say all those things, but I believe that allowing himself to be baptized helped in that process. I believe he uh, was baptized to be an example for his followers, for those of us today. Because we find that even though Christian baptism is a little bit different than John's baptism, because it takes place this side of the cross, There are many similarities. Jesus asks those who choose to follow him and become his disciples to be baptized. And I would just encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus and you've never been baptized, you need to be baptized. I'm not saying that to condemn you. I'm not saying that to to hold it over your head. But Jesus said that was the way that we would publicly declare that we've chosen to follow Jesus. And we're trusting him for salvation. And we're trusting that his death on the cross paid the price for our sins. And because we are doing that, our sins have been washed away. But I believe another reason that Jesus was baptized was to be a symbol of his coming death 
and resurrection. Just as Jesus went down into that water and came back up, he would, about three, three and a half years later, he would die on the cross and he would be buried and he would be raised again to new life. And that's important because that's another reason why he asked his followers to be baptized is to symbolize that in their own life, that we as believers have died to our old lives. And now we've been raised to new life that God gives to us as followers of Jesus. So that is why I believe that Jesus was baptism, but it shows that baptism is important. If Jesus didn't need baptism, but he was baptized, how much more should we be baptized when he asks us to as a public declaration of our faith? Another important concept in this passage is that prayer is important. Prayer is important. If you read through this really quick, you might not even notice it. But look at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Matthew talks about Jesus's baptism. Mark talks about it. Luke, all four Gospels talk about Jesus's baptism. But Luke is the only one that mentions that during that event, that momentous event in Jesus's life and ministry, the kick off to his public entering into the world, that Jesus was praying. We see that's a key theme in the book of Luke. And I encourage you and challenge you as we work our way through, as you read through it on your own, that you notice how many times that Luke mentions Jesus being in prayer. There are events that are reported in all the Gospels, or at least uh, uh, more than one, two, or three, or four, all four of them that are mentioned. And the other Gospel writers don't mention it, but Luke mentions that at that event, Jesus was praying. The transfiguration. The other Gospel writers write about it, but Jesus, uh, uh, Luke specifically mentions Jesus was praying. All the Gospels write about how Jesus chose his disciples, but Luke mentions that Jesus spent all night in prayer beforehand, before he chose his 12 disciples. So it's a key principle in the book of Luke. The third important concept we see in this story is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit is important. This also is a key theme for Luke. Remember, Luke not only wrote the Gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts, which talks about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit coming on God's people on the day of Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit filled them and empowered them to do God's work in the world, taking the gospel around the world. When we find here, it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus in such a way that it, that it was physically evident in the form of a dove. It doesn't say it was a dove, but it was kind of like a dove. It may have been, uh, you know, looked exactly like a dove. I don't know. But this is a key theme. This is the time when Jesus is anointed for ministry. We've mentioned many times that Jesus is called Jesus Christ, and Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It's the same title as Messiah, and Christ and Messiah both mean the anointed one. And it's at his baptism that Jesus is anointed to begin his public ministry. As we go on in Luke, we're going to see that Luke talks about Jesus being filled with the Spirit or full of the Spirit and how he was led by the Spirit. We'll see that next week. And we, how it talks about how he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you that even though Jesus was God come in the flesh, he did what he did because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in his life and by the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus, God himself, come in the flesh, needed to take advantage of and to, to operate in the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need to operate in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is important. 
The fourth important concept here of five, in case you're wondering, and then we're going to jump into the main part here. The fourth one is this. Waiting on God's timing is important. Just mention this in passing. Jesus is about 30 years old. He's known for a while. We don't know exactly when he got the full understanding, who he is and what God has sent him to do, but he is waiting for the right time. He sees, he shows a lot of promise at age 12 in the temple as he, his understanding of God's word and his questions and his answers astound the religious leaders and the religious teachers. But 18 years he waits. 18 years he spends in a small home in a backwater town being a carpenter. And he's God, the son of God, come to redeem the world. But God's timing is always best. And he waited patiently. That's a great example for us. We may have great dreams, we may have great visions, great goals. And we need to seek God about those. But just realize that we need to wait for God's timing in our life. For whatever it, events that God has for us. It's not always easy, but we need to have some patience. I believe the most important concept in this passage that Luke is trying to get across is the fifth one. Jesus came for all people. Jesus came to this earth eventually to suffer and die for the sins of all people, not just the Israelites, not just the Jewish people, but all people. That's one of the purposes of this long genealogy that we summarized that is there. Genealogies were very, very important to the Jewish people. They were also very important to the Greeks. If you had some uh, major important person, you need to know where they came from. And so you would trace back their genealogy. Matthew also traces gene, uh, Matthew's gene, uh, uh, Jesus's genealogy, but only goes back as far as Abraham. You see, for the Jewish people, it was so significant because of the covenants they had with God, because of the promises they had from God. It was very significant that Jesus was descended from David. David was the greatest king and God was so pleased with his heart. He wasn't always pleased with his actions. In fact, most wives would not want David, would want their husband to be just like David. Except in certain specific ways. He was a scoundrel in many ways. But he had a heart for God, and when he messed up, which he did big time, he always repented. But God was so impressed with his heart, he says, I've not only made you king now, but from now on, it's going to be one of your descendants that's going to be the king. And one day there would come a king who would be the king forever. And I will treat your sons like my sons. I will call your sons my sons. When they get out of line, I'm going to discipline them. But you will have a king on the throne until that one comes. So it was so significant that Jesus was the descendant of David because Jesus is now going to be and is the eternal king of the line of David. For the Jewish people, it was important that he was descended from Abraham because of all the promises that God had made to Abraham as he was beginning his plan in this world. As I said, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to Abraham and stops there. But Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And I believe that he did that because, as I said earlier, Jesus represents all of humanity. And he came for all of humanity. And if you were to look at the list of people that are there, we don't know much about most of the people on there. We do know bits and pieces about some of the characters that are there, and some of them were definitely characters. And in that list, we see people that are well-known and unknown, 
godly and ungodly, all nationalities, all races, all social statuses, they all came from Adam. And Jesus came for them all. And that's one of the points that Luke is trying to make with that genealogy. Now let's focus in on the main thing that I think God wants us to talk about this morning and then apply to our own lives. And that is the title of my message today, The Father's Declaration. The Father's Declaration, we find it in verse 22. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came down and it says the voice came from heaven and God said, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. A momentous event. God speaking from heaven over Jesus as he's baptized, as he's being anointed for ministry, he's getting ready to step out. What is, G- what is God communicating? What, what is he trying to do by literally speaking from heaven? Well, I'll be honest with you, I don't think this is the most important thing, but Jesus was not only God, but he was human. I can't help but believe that at least one reason for all this is just God letting his son know he's proud of him and to encourage him. He's getting ready to begin this momentous ministry that's going to culminate in his death. A very terribly painful death. And God wants to encourage him. At the beginning of any great endeavor, many times there's a ceremony, there's some kind of special thing that happens and there are special words that are spoken. I think that's part of it too. But we find in God's words very key thoughts about who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish. Two thoughts here. He says, you are my beloved son. You're my beloved son. And that obviously is literally true. But for the Jewish people who would know about this, this would immediately bring their minds to the second psalm. The second psalm is what's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that's written about the coming king who's going to be the Messiah. And in that psalm, God calls that one to come his son. And it describes the coronation of God's Messiah, the eternal king, son of David, son of God. And so as God speaks from heaven and says, my beloved son, it's kind of shorthand for saying, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the eternal king, son of David, son of God. He says also with you, I am well pleased. That's not just a statement of pleasure, of satisfaction, of I like you. But again, for the Jewish people who would hear this, they would be reminded of Isaiah chapter 42. There's a number of places in Isaiah where God gives Isaiah a vision of this servant. He's called the servant who's to come. Who though, even though most of God's people are totally um, rebellious and ungodly, this servant would be so faithful and would serve God completely. But unfortunately, this servant would have to suffer and to die. And that this suffer, servant's suffering and this servant's death would pay the price for the sins of humanity. The suffering servant, perhaps you've heard that concept before. It's sprinkled throughout Isaiah. But in Isaiah 42.1, this statement of being well-pleased is there. And so as people heard this, they would think of that. And that God is saying of Jesus, you are the servant Messiah who would suffer and die. Serving God while dying for humanity's sins. So if you were to put this all together, when Jesus, when God makes this statement, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. It's not only encouraging to Jesus. It's not only great words to begin his ministry. 
But it's God announcing that Jesus was the Messiah, his ser- her servant who would suffer and die, and the king that would reign forever. He was telling us Jesus, God's son, had come to earth to fulfill prophecy and bring salvation to those who would believe. Now, how can we apply this to our own lives? Great story, great understanding of Jesus' coming and how it was inaugurated and announced and, and anointed and all that kind of stuff. How does it apply to our lives? And this is the main thing I want you to get. What the father communicated to his son, we should communicate to others. I don't mean tell other people that they're Messiah and they're going to die to save the world. I'm talking about the words of encouragement. What the father communicated to his son, we should communicate to others. Primarily people of significance to us, but the principles apply to any relationship we end up developing. What is it that the father communicated to Jesus in the midst of all this? The first one is acceptance. Acceptance. You're mine. You're mine. You are my beloved son. In the original language, it's literally as for you. It's emphasizing as for you, you are my son. Now, please understand this is not a thing of possession. I mean, that has a negative connotation, doesn't it? Well, you're mine. Like, you don't have any rights. You don't have it. You're mine. You got to do what I want. That's not the idea here at all. This is the idea of acceptance. We, we all know. Have you ever been in a situation where there's, uh, you know, varying ages and something's going on, whatever, and there's some kids that are getting a little unruly and you happen to know what family they're in and you're talking to their parents and they look over them at them and they look at you and said, they're not my kids. How many of you ever said that yourself? Anybody willing to admit it? A couple of you are, yeah. This is just the opposite of that. When they're doing something good, when they're doing something right, that's my child, that's my son, that's my daughter, those are my kids. We've seen that many times over the years when we have maybe something going on here at church and the kids are up on the platform and, and you know, sometimes they're doing stuff that, that's not my kid. Here in slide their face, you know. Maybe they're picking their noses. I shouldn't have said that in a sermon. Anyway, whatever. But other times when they shine, that's my boy, that's my girl. Acceptance. How do we express that to other people? That's my wife. That's my husband. That's my son. That's my, that's my mom. That's my dad. That's my grandpa. My papa. That's my nana. That's my granddaughter. That's my grandson. I'm proud of him. You know, as I was preparing this message, I, I, I started to realize how privileged I am. And how fortunate I am because I can honestly say I am so proud. My grandparents are gone now. So proud of my parents. I'm so proud of my wife. So proud of my two daughters. So proud of my three granddaughters. There's not a one of them that I couldn't honestly say that without being totally truthful. People want to know that you accept them, that you're proud to be associated with them. That you can say, I'm so glad that you're my wife. I'm so glad that you're my husband. I'm so glad that you're my mother. You're my father. I'm so glad that you're my son. I'm so glad that you're my daughter. I'm so glad that you're my friend. I'm so glad that you're my co-worker. Whatever the relationship is, people yearn for that. We know that's true because we yearn for it, don't we? 
I not only said that I'm so glad that I can say that I'm so proud of all these relationships in my life. I want to know that that's true, how they feel about me too. Of course, that raises the question, what if I'm not always glad? What if the child does something or your spouse does? I'm not really glad right now. That's okay. Those moments come. But focus more on the times that you are glad. Find something to be glad about. Now, please understand, I am not trying to minimize the pain of a relationship that should be so much more than what it is or what it was. That's a whole different issue. Abusive relationships, that's, that's something different. But we're just focusing on the relationships that we have and how do we build those relationships. And, and this is so important that we communicate acceptance. You know, nobody's perfect. So you can't wait for them to be perfect. I know there's kind of a joke that my wife and I have. I'll say something silly or stupid or funny or whatever. Sometimes she does, not as near as often as I do. But she'll look at me, she goes, you know what, you're a mess. But you're my mess. And the idea is, you know what, you're not perfect. But I'm still so glad you're mine. That's kind of how we have to operate, isn't it? Because nobody's perfect. So we should communicate acceptance. The second thing we should communicate is love. I love you. I love you. God said that. My beloved son. Again, in the original language, it says, as for you, you are my son, the beloved one. <laughs> I got to turn my notifications off on my iPad. I just got one for my granddaughter. Say, I love you too, Papa. He said, my beloved son, literally, as for you, you are my son, the beloved one. I can tell you some of the saddest times in our ministry, my wife and I, and unfortunately it's happened more than once, more than twice, when we've had young people, and sometimes people that aren't so young, come and tell us, you know what? In all my life, I've never heard my mother tell me, I love you. In all my life, I've never heard my father say to me, I love you. And it's harder for men sometimes because we're raised maybe in our culture or in our environment or in our family where the man has to be strong. They have to be manly. And, and to say something like that would be a show of weakness. And I would say it's just the opposite. It takes a strong man to be emotional, emotionally vulnerable to say, I love you. Haven't been doing it near as much in COVID. <laughs> but you know, I don't have a problem. Given another man that I have a relationship with a hug. And sometimes I'm not sure how they're going to respond. I mean, I don't give somebody a hug they don't want, okay? We should never do that. Always be sensitive whether the person you want to hug is willing and desiring to receive one, okay? Take note of that, greeters. Anyway. But sometimes I can tell they wouldn't mind. But what I'll say is, you know what? I'm man enough to give you a hug. Are you man enough to give me one? It takes a man. God has called men and women to be leaders in their home, workplace, church. But it takes a real strong man to be loving and to communicate that love. So don't hesitate to say I love you to those who are significant to you. Reminds me of the story I heard. I don't know if it's true. I'm sure the truth of it is real in many relationships about a wife talking to her husband. They've been married for quite a long while. And she says, you know what, honey? It's been so long since you've told me you love me. And he said, honey, I told you that on the day we got married. And if I ever change my mind, I'll let you know. 
That's one of those things that needs to be repeated and expressed, even if they already know. And can I tell you, it's so important that you don't just tell them. You need to show them. You see, the words are empty if you don't demonstrate it. And not just by buying them things. Now, gifts are nice. How many of you like gifts? Okay, lots of hands, mostly ladies. Yes. Buying gifts is great. But you know what? We can't buy love. And if we think that by buying things for our spouse or our kids or whatever means I don't have to spend as much time with them, I don't have to communicate with them, I don't have to get involved with them, they'll know I love them, we're missing it big time. You need to spend time with them. I've shared before, but many times when we get together as a family, I remember when Jan's parents were still alive and we'd go visit them, we'd just sit around the table after a meal. We might sit there for an hour, hour and a half, just talking and reliving memories. And we do the same thing when we go to Ohio where my family is and the family all gets together and usually there's a meal and we just sit around afterwards talking and it's all about the memories. And it's not memories of, well, do you remember when we bought this? Do you remember when we had that? Do you remember this this thing that we, you know, this car? No, it's all about the times that we spent together in family. We need to communicate acceptance. You're mine. We need to communicate love. I love you. And then the third one, last one, we need to communicate value. They're all tied together, but you are valuable to me. You're important to me. God said to Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. The father took delight, pleasure, satisfaction in Jesus, his son. And we need to communicate that to the other people of our life. You are valuable to me. And as a side note, we need to let them know they're valuable to God, too. And as I said before, don't wait for them to be perfect. Yes, there are rough edges. Yes, there are things that you don't like. Yes, there are things you don't agree with. But look for the good to commend them for. And go ahead and commend them for anything that's good, but make sure you don't just focus on the superficial. What do I mean by that? Say, you know what? You're valuable to me because you are a great athlete. You're valuable to me because you're beautiful. You're value to me, valuable to me because you're smart. Because all those things may not last forever. They do add value. But communicate value based on their character, based on their personality, based on who they are as a person. Now, that doesn't mean that we stop correcting, especially in the case of parents with children and grandchildren, disciplining, instructing. We just need to make sure that the correction and the discipline isn't the main focus all the time. So we need to communicate these things in all of our significant relationships. You're mine. I love you. You're valuable. Because as I've said, these are emotional needs that we all have. We all want to belong, not just to an organization, but to a group of people. We want to be loved. We want to be valued. These are, these are needs I believe God built into us to help us with relationships. Unfortunately, the enemy likes to use them to cause problems. So parents to your children, children to your parents, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, grandparents and grandchildren, other loved ones, friends, let them know. 
Oh, they already know. Let them know. Let them know this week. And if this is not something that you're already kind of in the habit of doing, I challenge you to develop habits to express these things regularly. Now, don't overdo it to where you feel like they feel like you're just being superficial. You're just trying to get on the good side. You know, there's a balance to everything. And please understand that when I say this, I'm not trying to tell you to lie. You know, don't say something, you know, I really value you because of this. It's not true, but, you know, most people can tell a lie from the truth or at least we'll find out eventually. When you communicate these things, they need about truthful things. Not telling you to lie. Speak the truth in love. Find the positive. And I'm not trying to tell you you should ignore weaknesses. Just overlook them. Part of love is we help people with their weaknesses. In the same vein, we don't ignore or approve of sin or destructive behavior or destructive lifestyle or sinful lifestyle. But we love people in spite of that. As I said, especially in the area of parents and grandparents, we still need to discipline. We still need to instruct or any other authority structure as a boss or whatever. We need to help. And let me throw out this little side area idea here too. Another important idea. Communicate these things to them personally. But when it's appropriate, communicate it publicly. Now, you've got to be very, very careful because you don't want to be that parent or the, more about that grandparent who's always talking about their grandchild. Okay? But neither should we shut that off. We shouldn't be ashamed, hesitate, to let people know that we love them, appreciate them, and value them in front of other people, that they're important to us, that they're significant to us. Just don't be obnoxious about it. As I wrap this up, and the worship team can go ahead and come, the final thought I want to leave with you is this, that just as God communicated this to Jesus, he also communicates that to us. Or at least he wants to. These same three things. I'm going to take them a little bit out of order for a certain reason, but first of all, I want to tell you God loves you. He may not love everything you do, everything you're involved in, the sin in your life. In fact, I can guarantee you he doesn't love that, but he loves you. Probably the most famous verse in the Bible is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I can tell you God loves you. And maybe I'm speaking to somebody specifically right now that you've given up on that idea. You say, there's no way God can love me. I've done too much. I've said too much. I've gone too many places that there's definitely no way that he would approve of. And that may be true. But you know what? God's love never gives up. Just saying this morning, God's reckless love. <laughs> It'll go to any ends to track you down. In fact... Sometimes people testify that if they don't have a relationship with God, they, they feel this, this, this weight, this, because God is pursuing them. And I pray that way for people that I love that don't know Jesus. God pursue them. May they not be able to get away from your love. It may come in the sense of conviction. It may come in the sense of how can I deal with this? But Lord, may they be convinced of your love. Sometimes you got to pray, Lord, convict them of their sin. But I, whenever I pray, Lord, convict them of their sin, I pray it for myself. I don't ever want to pray something for somebody else. I don't pray for myself. 
But whenever I pray, Lord, convict them of their sin, the end goal, they come to, but also, Lord, convince them of your love. Because God loves you. The second one is you're valuable to God. God created you uniquely. God created each of us uniquely. And you know what? You are so valuable to God that Jesus died for you. And I hate to pop your bubble. Jesus didn't die for you because you're such a wonderful person. He didn't die for me for the same reason. The Bible makes it clear. It's while we were yet sinners, rebellious against God, Jesus came to die. God sent him. Jesus willingly came. You are valuable. That same verse, John 3, 16, tells it all, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. But another verse we love to quote, has some great truths and promises to it, is Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. God wants what's best for you. Now, his idea of what's best and his timing of when we get it, it can be totally different than ours. When he made this promise, the people are going to receive the fulfillment of it in 70 years. He's going to take some time. You're going to go through some rough stuff. But you're valuable to me. This is what I have for you. You're valuable to God. And the third and last one is this. God wants a close personal relationship with you. God wants to be your father. I've said this many times. People would say, well, isn't God everybody's father? No, he's not. He's the creator of all, but he's not the father of all. When Jesus came into the world, John wrote about it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12. He says, yet to all who received him, talking about Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The context of that is that Jesus came and his own people rejected him. A lot of them did anyway. But for those who did receive him. For those who believed in his name, his name being who he is, who he was, who he came to be, what he came to do, he gave the right to become children of God. And so I'd say today, to each and every one of you, if you don't have a relationship with God, as defined by the way we have a relationship with God in Scripture, because you so... You see, we may, we may think that, well, I'm a good person and I do all this stuff. I go to church, I pray, I read my Bible, I give, I help people, you know, all that kind of stuff. All those are wonderful things. But if you're thinking you've got a great relationship with God because of that, you're mistaken. Because the Bible says we're all sinners separated from God and the wages of sin is death, which, is, which means, again, that separation from God eternally. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so the way we have that relationship with God and the way we're able to, to, to fulfill what God wants, this is what God wants. God wants a close personal relationship with you. He's done everything he can. He's gone way beyond what anybody else would do for you to make it possible for you to have a relationship with him by sending Jesus to die a horrific death. But you have to receive that gift. You have to respond to that. You might say, how do I do that? It's very simple. You just express it to him. With something like, God, I'm a sinner and I'm separated from you. Your word says that. And I, I agree. I am a sinner. I, I don't even keep my own standards, much less yours. Would you please forgive me? Not because I deserve it, not because I can earn it, but because your word says that's why Jesus came. 
He came to die on the cross to pay the price for my sins. So would you forgive me? I'm going to put my trust in that. And I pray that you just come into my life and, and help me, Lord, because I'm a mess. And help me to give up sin because that's what caused the barrier between me and you. And I don't want it there anymore. I'm repenting. I'm sorry for it. And I, I want to live a different life and I can't do it without your help. Just something simple like that. And the Bible says that as we do that, as we put our trust in him, believing that Jesus is what, what God's word says, he is God come in the flesh. He came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. And his death paid the price for our sins. And we put our trust in that. And I challenge you to do that today. Let's all stand together. And before we go into the last little thing we're going to do before we close today, I want to ask, are you here today? And you'd say, you know what? The person you were just talking about, that's me. I need a relationship with God. Maybe you're there at home online, you're watching this, or maybe you're listening to it now or later. I can't see you, I can't communicate with you, but you can still respond. But if you'd say, you know what, I need a Savior, and today I want to ask God to forgive me of my sins, come into my life, and I want to start living for Him. Would you just raise your hand up? Most of us in this room have done this. It's something to celebrate. It's not something to be ashamed of. We are all dirty, rotten sinners. Many of us have already done this. Is there anybody that's here today and say, I need Jesus today. I need Jesus today. Okay. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come, our elders primarily, but to come. Our worship team is going to lead us into another song, a phenomenal song. We sang it last week. Focused on Jesus. We need Jesus. But we're going to sing this through, and I'll come back in a few moments to close in prayer. But while we do, we're going to be down front. If you want or need prayer for any reason, for yourself or for somebody else, come. If you're here today and say, you know, I should have raised my hand earlier. I need Jesus. Come. Tell us that. We'll pray with you. But let's take this time to pray. The rest of you, worship, meditate, allow God to speak to you. Maybe you're going to start making a mental list. I need to go home and call somebody. I need to go home and tell somebody something. I need to apply this message to my life. But let's take this time to respond. Come if you need prayer, if you want prayer. And we'll close in just a couple of moments. Break every stronghold. Shine through the shadows. Burn like the Let's just worship them together. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We magnify your name. Thank you for Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, Father, I think the biggest thing we need is for your love to flow through us. To live out this, to live out this message, Lord God, to be a great witness to the world around us, to have a great relationship with you and with our family and the people that are significant to us. Lord, we just need your love because we, we fail, we fall, we come so short. Lord, may Jesus shine through us. Hallelujah. Father, I just pray that you would help us to live out this message, Lord God. I pray that we'd be so glad, so joyful, so enthused that you loved us enough to send Jesus to, live, to, to die for us, Lord God. And your life flows through our life that we would share that with everybody we come in contact with, Lord God. Help us, Lord God, to be loving people. 
Help us to value others, Lord God. And help us, Lord God, to express that to them in ways that are meaningful and that point people to you. Father, we just thank you and we praise you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org. 